Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and my guest this week is Sarah Dighton. She's a columnist, a critic, and a feature writer. She writes for The Sunday Times and other publications. And her book, Toxic, Women, Fame and the Noughties, is out now. And it's a blinder of a read. Here she is. When I was writing the book, one of the things I thought quite often was, I can't wait to talk to Julie about this. So, <laughs> well, is, I'm so grateful. This is the dream. I'm so grateful to you for writing this book, and I'll tell you why. Because this era that you've written about from the 15 years from '98 kind of passed me by in the way that you have reflected on it. Now, I don't mean that I didn't notice that there was this vast tidal wave of misogyny, but I wasn't looking directly at that. I wasn't looking at popular culture in that way. I wasn't looking at music. I was looking at it from the other end, Mm. which is what's happening with the porn industry. How is technology now driving porn? How is porn now driving technology? And yes, we saw the imagery all around us, but I saw it as a backdrop and you've done an absolutely fascinating deep dive into it. And it has enriched my understanding of how things worked in terms of the indoctrination of girls and boys and the music industry in general. Tell me about when you got the idea for the book. I wrote an article about the Free Britney campaign, so the movement to support Britney's efforts to extricate herself from the conservatorship operated by her father that controlled her life. And I think I wrote that in 2001. And I, after it was published, a friend of mine called Ian Leslie said, oh, this is a book. And I was like, oh, <laughs> maybe it's a book. And then it, then it clicked into place because I suddenly realised that I have literally spent my whole life thinking about this essentially trash. <laughs> I was back in the actual noughties, certainly in the, sort of the um, early years of it, I was a student and then a postgraduate student. And I was there was a chunk of time when I was supposed to be writing a, a doctoral thesis about George Eliot. And I just remember spending all of my time reading gossip blogs and pop bitch newsletters <laughs> which like, has stood you in good stead though to well be it's fair. all worked out in the end hasn't it nobody wants a book about George Eliot so <laughs> what, else, what else is there to say about George Eliot <laughs> look tell me about the Sarah Dighton in 1998 who were you what were you doing and what were your thoughts about feminism or music or anything yeah so I'm a few months younger than Britney so no sorry a few months older than Britney sorry Britney very rude of me to age you up so so when I first saw the Baby One More Time video in early 1999 in the UK, I just responded to it really immediately as like a young woman wa- watching pop culture made by and for young women. And I grew up in a house where pop music, rock and roll, blues and folk, every kind of popular music basically was constant. My dad is a massive record collector and I've always been just in listening to music, reading about music, talking to the rest of my family about music um and always my dad has always had this really what's the right way to put it because never any snobbery about music never <laughs> obviously he's very sniffy about some of the stuff in this book which is not to his taste <laughs> but 
I can imagine. But I grew up in a household where there was as much excitement about the day the Phil Spector box set arrived as there was about the day that the Bob Dylan box set arrived. Mm -hmm. Music that was formed by teenage girls was seen, that was as important as music that was formed by quote unquote serious men. And it was always, and music had always been like my entry point to talking about the world as well. The music press, as I started reading it, the enemy and melody maker of the 1990s, it was still, I think, a really um, fertile ground for writers. It was somewhere where writers would be drawn to if they just had, like, you had a bunch of stuff to say about the world and this was a place where you could find your feet and get started. So it was always where I would just find tons of ideas about books, film, lit and politics, as well as the music. It was all filtered through this. So I was fascinated by pop culture anyway always all my life and then the noughties happened and it, that there's this weird thing happens right where pop culture during the noughties it goes from being something that is covered by the tabloids supermarket tabloids and the red tops and suddenly like the big papers like the guardian and the new york times are getting in on the act and doing celebrity coverage celebrity coverage kind of takes over the world in this period and it's this time when knowing celebrity gossip seemed really important in terms of just having small talk i remember working so at this time i was a student and i would be doing <sighs> like little part-time jobs like working in shops for example and celebrity gossip is that's the banker for just making small talk it's like the equivalent of men knowing about football it's just like oh my god if I've just got like, <laughs> a few opinions about Britney Spears then I can get through any conversation during this day <laughs> brilliant the currency has somewhat changed doesn't it <laughs> Right, but it's the kind of, it's like the lingua franca of small talk <laughs> in this period, and everybody knows about it. Everyone's got an opinion about it, and everyone is like semi-ironic, but not that ironic because they're actually doing it. Way is absolutely fascinated by celebrity, the explosion of reality TV, this idea of normal people becoming celebrities, but also because you have this more intrusive press, this idea of making celebrities seem human mm. as well is a really important theme of this time. And it's funny to look back at that because I think even in some of the feminist writing about the women I write about in this book, you don't get a strong sense that, for example, Britney or Paris were being seen as victims. And I think that's partly because women have so much experience of famous women being held over you as a normal woman, held up as this sort of yardstick against which you were wanting. You're not beautiful enough. You're not perfect enough. You're not trying hard enough to be pleasing. And so there was a kind of pleasure in seeing these icons of femininity being quote-unquote brought down to a human level and yet when you were asked I think it was on woman's hour mm. was this the worst decade you rightly in my opinion wouldn't get taken down that line because there's the worst in some way and then there's the worst in another and there's probably worse to come 
and but it was worse in some ways wasn't it it was the worst the most shocking era in terms of the way that women could be hated and sexually desired at the same time by the same men yeah I think the reason that I'm interested in this particular period, which is really defined by the arrival of the internet, that's the most important social change that happens and technological change that happens in this period, is the internet arrives and it collapses the division between private and public. And that is immediately a problem for women because private and public don't mean the same thing for men and women. Men are deemed to have a public self to be entitled to an existence in the public realm for women there's always been this tricky thing of navigating the fact that becoming a quote-unquote public woman is that's a euphemism for being a prostitute right to make yourself publicly visible is seen to have the sequel of making yourself sexually available um and you can see that in the treatment of the suffragists and suffragettes for example who were lambasted as sexually promiscuous in some of the anti-suffrage propaganda and who were actually sexually assaulted during the Black Friday protests outside Parliament, which feels very shocking, right? This idea that the police would be grabbing women's breasts and treating them in that way. But it's that logic of you're demanding to be to have access to public life therefore we are entitled to access to you this is the apt punishment which is how the book really spoke very loudly to me on that front the public and the private and the way that you analyzed the misogyny that we could see through that lens because so we're a generation apart I'm 61 and I came to feminism at the very end of the 70s but with a backdrop of the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe who Mm. is of course known as the Yorkshire Ripper and it was very much about the private and the public because of course the women's group that I joined just before I think he killed his 12th victim yeah were talking about violence against women and girls in the home and that the obsession with stranger danger Mm. with the police saying there's a curfew on women in order to keep safe there was this monstrous man out there. He was extremely dangerous. He did kill 13 women at least and leave seven others for dead. It was a terrible time for women in the north of England, fearing that. But he was also at the same time a bogeyman because we knew that the worst danger for women and girls was in the home. We were told yet again to be confined to the home where terrible things happen, including being murdered by men, being sexually abused as girls and as women married to these men. And yet, on the other hand, public life became very dangerous for us and the streets became very dangerous. And at the same time, we were then galvanised to march on the streets, demanding that we reclaim the night. So there's always that tension, isn't there, between the kind of paternalistic view of men, we'll look after you, we'll protect you, Mm -hmm. when we know that they might be the men that are actually targeting us. We're told that if we get married to men, and stay safely in the home that we're safe. We know that's when we're most at risk of male violence. But at the same time, the streets were terribly dangerous for us. Nowhere was safe. And of course, the presence of this one man was a distraction from the fact that there were many men out there targeting women. And of course, he was the most extreme. But how do you then translate that into the message 
that was being portrayed to girls listening to the music by Britney and yeah. Paris and seeing the photographs and the imagery and the sex videos of these mm. women through magazines. What did it tell girls and women? Did it tell us that we were suddenly safe and sexually liberated or did it act as a warning? Yeah, you're talking about a kind of peak, what in the UK was referred to as Ladette culture and is really under the rubric of choice feminism or sex positive feminism. This idea that basically you can play as hard as the boys and by doing so you're liberated. There is, and it's extraordinary to look at from this vantage point, having for example, being aware of all the work that you have done over the previous 20 years, knowing the work of Caroline Criado Perez around male default and the way women have been excluded from research, and to encounter this feeling at the beginning of this century of people saying, what else is there to fight for? <laughs> Get your tits out. <laughs> Get your tits out. Get your tits out and your tits out. Yeah. But it's interesting because it is a kind of classic double bind thing because the message to girls was obviously like, in part, it's to be like this, emulate these women or emulate the way in which these women are being presented because this is attractive, this receives attention, therefore it must be valuable. But at the same time, it's a warning because if go slightly too far in terms of being, if you're too sexy, if you actually do end up being the woman in the sex tape there's no sympathy or mercy for you so it really defines a very narrow version of femininity like literally narrow because you have such incredible lionizing of extreme skinniness in this period as well mm. so it's a very you know, a very tight line that you're supposed to walk as a girl in this situation and it's anti-sisterly as well because it encourages you to see yourself as not one of those girls one way or the other you're either the kind of girl who is you know so smart and clever and liberated that you don't need to like hold yourself to the boring old norms and laws that other girls are subjected to or you're not like the other girls in that you're not one of those slutty hoes and you're never going to you're going to be so careful and clever that you'll never find yourself the victim of a sex tape. Yes. So the justification for rape comes through this discourse, doesn't it? And a lot of people would say, well, that's going too far. That's ridiculous. Don't be mm. silly. But it totally is. And you outline it really well in the book where you talk about how if women are seen to be available, they have to be fully available all the time yeah. to all men. And that's exactly what we see at rape trials. It's what we see when women blame themselves, blame ourselves for being raped where police attitudes are very much along these lines of what previous sexual history does she have? And this right, happened to a really women. painful thing about the discovery process, right? Is that obviously you need the discovery process. The defense should always have access to making the strongest version of the defense case. But at the same time, this idea that a woman's entire like messaging and social media history can be brought up in front of the court are you absolutely sure you've never said anything that can be made to sound a bit right. slutty in front right. of a jury and it's the kind of woman who can pass that test is you wouldn't even bet on someone from the Plymouth Brethren getting past it to be honest would <laughs> well, you <laughs> and also as I was reading the book and the word hymen 
all of a sudden was on oh. the page. I thought, oh my God, I haven't heard that word hymen for a long time. <laughs> you hear it when groups like South or Black Sisters talk about virginity testing at yeah. uh, borders and the like, because of the assumption that women are sneaking their way into the country with arranged marriages that are bogus. Yeah. And yet there it was. There was discussion about hymens and about who was going to fuck who first and who right, had been. Right, this obsession with Britney's virginity. And I'd, I'd actually half forgotten this before I started working on the book. But one of the things about Britney's early presentation was she wore a purity ring, which is this kind of thing out of evangelical Christian culture of the time where teenagers were encouraged to wear a purity ring as a kind of promise to not have sex before marriage. <laughs> I um, just thought of something. Is it, the same, <laughs> is it the same as the asexual ring that's now being attacked? <laughs> By anyway. But it's a funny, yeah, it is, there is a funny Maybe not. There, except I think the kind of, what turned out to the upshot of purity ring culture and abstinence education was you just ended up getting a bunch of teenagers in a room telling them about what a terrible temptation sex was. And unsurprisingly, the teenagers did not abstain particularly hard after they'd received this message. In in exactly the same way as the NoFap, which is a grotesque name for a group. (laughs) Group in the States is probably those blokes are rogering themselves senseless in their mother's basement. But going out and talking about how masturbation is bad for one. But anyway, to go back to Britney's virginity. (laughs) Yeah. A real fixation around Britney's virginity and this portrayal of her as this sexy but virginal schoolgirl. And and she was always being presented to these two audiences at once. In her autobiography, which I've just read, and which came out obviously two days before my book, so not something that I was able to refer to in the writing of my book, but she writes about how weird she found it that she was doing shows to these this audience of young girls and dirty old men basically so she had so she was like in some ways if you remember Joan Smith's book misogynies and the chapter in that about Sam Fox of course and her yeah and her performances at working men's club um Brittany had that audience but she also had the little girl audience and her presentation was really designed to appeal across the board for me at the time as someone who was Brittany's age and peer I absolutely love the idea that you could take the threat of male sexuality and be somehow in command of it, that you could sexualize yourself and you could have got the punch in before anyone else. And that would somehow make you in charge. Yeah, you talk about this kind of pro-prostitution narrative that the so-called sex positive feminists have taken up. And let's just debunk a myth here. We are all sex positive. We're all all pro a good shag. (laughs) We're all pro a good shag. And to say that we are somehow sex negative, and Gail Dines, the scholar who focuses on the porn industry, who's brilliant, as she describes it, to say that if you're against pornified culture and the sex trade, to say that means you're against sex is like saying that you don't like food because you don't like McDonald's. Yeah. And you say in the book, don't you, that women are under pressure to present in a particular sexualized way that comes through the lens of patriarchy, but at the same time, protest their innocence always, because it has to be something that's being done to them by men. But then when do they become sluts if this is the case? Well, right, I think the kind of 
the thing that I look at in most detail in the book that covers the sort of dynamics you're talking about is probably the Girls Gone Wild videos, yes. which yeah. were these briefly blooming, incredibly successful franchise of pornographic films, softcore porn, which were made by going to university campuses in America or like spring break hotspots, finding drunk girls, getting them to sign a release and flash their tits for like some beads or some drinks or they would pay I think I think they had like a hundred they could pay 150 pounds for these women or girls to do something that was like more explicitly pornographic which even by the absolutely gouging rates that the porn industry proper pays for people that is really low-balling women yeah. for doing a scene but obviously they're not they're college students and the sort of the pleasure of Girls Gone Wild as it was described by the men who made it was to see a girl doing something that she wouldn't do in her everyday life and then be able to watch it again and again there's a, a quote-unquote sex-positive feminist writer called mm. a quote a blog post of hers about Girls Gone Wild in the book where, and she she enjoyed Girls Gone Wild, she, she was into it, where she says that the thing that she enjoys about it is the humiliation. Right. And it's that tension that the girls are being sold this idea that appearing in Girls Gone Wild makes them liberated and fun and free and sexy. And the people watching it are enjoying them being humiliated. It's that mismatch between what the girls and women believe they are showing and what the people watching are taking pleasure from and I think you find that in the sex industry all over right I was what's I watching that had oh I just watched the adaptation of Alistair Gray's novel Poor Things which is fantastic it's going to get general release I think early next year um and there's a line in it where a madam is talking to the main character who for sundry plot related reasons has entered a brothel and the uh, main character who is this like inc- the sort of conceit is that she's a very naive character she says but the men seem to the men don't care that we don't like it and the madam says no they pay extra because you don't like it that's what they want and it's um yeah, yeah there are certain things i mean that i found really difficult to read in the book because it just speaks such volumes about the misogyny of today and about how, I suppose at the time, which is obviously a big part of your theme, how the noughties was that exact era where porn met popular culture and they became enmeshed. And what we used to call soft porn, the playboy under your brother's bed or whatever, became MTV, became the images that we saw around Britney and Paris and all the rest of it. And I found that really hard to listen to and actually the what you've just described there about the brothel scene about men paying extra to humiliate or for women not to like what they're doing to them which is absolute rape it's not just rape culture it's rape was an interview I did with a punter for some research about 10 years ago now and he stays with me because when I asked him in this interview do you think that the women that you pay for enjoy enjoys the sex and most of the Johns that I'd interviewed before him had said oh god yes of course because they're big studs aren't they and of, yeah. who isn't going to like being rogered by him yeah. and this particular man and he was a good looking young man could have got a real date easily said yeah. no I don't want them to like it that would be taking something away from me 
Yeah, oh. which is and it's not like an extraordinarily honest thing to for him to say, and I think probably speaks a lot more of the reasons why men pay for sex or yes. watch porn in a lot of cases than any number of like fine sex positive rationalization oh you mean like the disabled man who comes right. back from some war zone with his legs blown off and his arms blown off and poor thing he can still get a stiffy so that's the nhs should deliver a sex worker to him because of course disabled men can't get a real day yeah oh. this model of the, the good punter who everyone would rather talk about than the actual average punter who definitely exists well but yeah what? It, it was um remarkably upsetting actually to revisit some of the early coverage of Paris the Paris Hilton sex tape which she never wanted to be released she thought I've read as many of the kind of legal documents that extant as I could and And yet it was supposedly that just because it was released and she had to suck it up that she all of a sudden she wanted it all along she wanted there was a supposition that because she had sought attention, she'd sought a place in the public eye, so she must have released this to further her public profile. And that is absolutely not true. I think it was released just after she'd signed on to do The Simple Life, and probably, in my view, as a reaction to it, either as a punish-the-bitch move or an effort to profit from her rising profile by someone who had access to the video. But the kind of very, um, the thing that I found quite obsessing about reading some of the early press coverage of people, like writing about having seen it, um, is that they would say quite, like she doesn't look like she's having a great time in this video. She is, you know, she's stiff and awkward and looks a bit passive. Like famously, there's a bit where she breaks off to just answer her phone because she's not that into the sex. And people seemed to enjoy it more in some ways because they were watching her do something that she didn't seem to find especially pleasurable. It is, again, that connection between the way that women in prostitution are seen, created, treated, and women who men decide, and viewers, not just men, the passive viewer who decides that these women are different from us, We'll never be those women. As you said earlier about the anti-sisterhood, the anti-sisterly kind of connection that we also desperately need. And also one thing that, that really stood out, and I think you dealt with this exceptionally well, as someone who's obsessed with class prejudice and how little it gets discussed in the way that it's enmeshed with misogyny and, and the like, is the way that women who are overly sexualized. Yeah are seen as trash. And it doesn't matter what class you're born into in a way, although it helps if you're born into trash, you are then low class, you are low bred. And that of course was a huge thing, wasn't it? And, And we see that with depictions in other forms of popular culture. Did you ever watch the comedy series, The Royal Family? Yeah. And do you remember that the one of Denise and um, Dave's babies, they, they decided if she was a girl, they'd call her Brittany. Yes. And, and that was supposedly, well, j- just for the record, listeners, they were going <laughs> to call the, the, the boy Keanu, and it was a boy. <laughs> yeah. But that was seen as hilarious because, of course, it was at the time when 
names that were different from the norm and yeah. they weren't the old-fashioned kind of working class names that then got appropriated by the upper classes Britney was just a laughing stock and that yeah, happened like Paris as well when they called Paris Travel Lodge because she was Paris Hilton and all of that kind yeah. of class prejudice yeah it's yeah it's really in terms of looking at class I found it really instructive and quite upsetting to have looked at Paris and Britney one after the other because I can't I think I wrote those chapters in succession um and the way because obviously Paris is a wasp princess comes from money she enters public consciousness as a basically a debutante except going to clubs rather than balls Brittany comes from I think people overstate the white trashness of her background her parents were like vacillating lower middle class sometimes well off sometimes not that well off and most of their issues really came about because of her father's heavy drinking caused a lot of the financial problems that they went through rather than purely class on its own. But she was portrayed as being white trash because she's from the South. Paris is portrayed as being this rich bitch. But in both cases, it's, well, the rich bitch needs a good fucking to bring her down a peg or two. And the white trash girl, well, she's no better than she ought to be. So, of course, she's a slut as well. And you can see the way that class is kind is inflected in the sexualization of women. And it's, yeah, it's definitely hard. The person who class-wise, I think, comes from the most blue-collar background in the book is probably China, the WWE wrestler. Yeah, tell me um, about her, because she was someone I hadn't ever come across before I read the and book. Yeah, and you wouldn't have done, right? If you, Because um, in if you're in the UK, wrestling certainly didn't really break through and go super mainstream until I would get, I would say probably when The Rock becomes a Hollywood star, that kind of brings the rest of wrestling through after it. If you're in America, and certainly if you're a blue-collar American... <laughs> wrestling's absolutely massive and I always knew it was something that I really wanted to include in the book because it's such an important part of American popular culture it's such a huge business but also it's a closed world because it comes from a real carny tradition and it does have that there's basically one carnival barker in charge of the whole show by the time I'm writing about it it's a monopoly run by the McMahon family really so you can so one of the reasons I really wanted to look at wrestling is because it's basically a kind of a petri dish for looking at how women have to operate within a particular institution. So China is very successful. She's the first female wrestler to be hyped up and given main storylines and to fight against the men. And the nature of wrestling, for people who don't know, is that the fights are real, but they're choreographed. So the outcomes are predetermined. The moves are planned, but the violence is legit. If you see someone getting hit with a chair in wrestling, they're really getting hit with a chair. There's a Which um, is different from what I was told when I was growing up. Wrestling was a really big thing. It was a very working class thing. Saturday afternoon, it was always... Mick McManus was the one I remember from my childhood. And it was always, it's a fake, it's set up. And yet there were so many injuries that these men I mean, it's fake and it's real. This is like the nature of wrestling. It's both fake. And it's real. It's both things all of the time, which in lots of ways makes it, it's the sort of American art form that understood where celebrity was going early on, because wrestling has always had this thing of having to incorporate the real world into the fiction in a way that as gossip culture gets more and more intrusive and consuming and invasive, 
all celebrities have to start incorporating their real world into their persona in the same way that wrestlers have already had to do. So you look at the way that kind of Paris manages her Paris persona and has to incorporate the sex tape into the character she plays in public. That's the kind of thing that wrestlers have always been having to do. But with China, because she's this woman in a men's world trying to prove her own worth and who ultimately, I think, she believes in the myth of her own power mm-hmm. and doesn't recognise how weak she actually is within yes. the institutions. She believes what the kind of character that she's created, this strong Amazonian woman. She looked incredible. If you haven't seen a picture of her, look her up because... I did. Like I was pushing. fascinated. I, I was fascinated when I read about her because obviously that's a theme that runs through the book, which is about mm-hmm. women believing at some stage, mm-hmm. and it's never constant, is it? Yeah. Believing in their own infallibility, in their own power, in their own strength in relation to men. And that mm-hmm. is crucial, isn't it, to end up in a situation of such vulnerability that you believe that you are infallible for that period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And so she ends up in this really difficult situation where she falls out of favour within WWE. Her former boyfriend marries into the McMahon family so her standing's basically blown anyway but she's also struggling with opioid addiction by this time which is not like really common with wrestlers because you're always being injured so you're quite likely to end up taking opioids but it's also really common for people of China's background to be working class Americans and absolutely ravaged by opioid addiction and I thought so for the, so the other reason for wanting to write about her is that she's a kind of window into the American working class experience and where it intersects with Donald Trump, because Donald Trump obviously became, he gets huge primetime exposure through doing The Apprentice in America. But if you want to see Donald Trump invent himself as the president he's going to see, go back and watch the appearances he made on WWE, because yes. he comes into the ring You can see how he works a live audience. You can see how he's funny and you can see how he presents this version of, um, well, basically he's the heel, right? In wrestling, there's this thing where you can be a face, which is the goodie, or you can be the heel, which is the baddie. And he plays the heel and he plays the heel that people love to get behind. Which is another way that you are so brilliant in describing the cultural backdrop and context. In Throughout all of the kind of nine case studies, there was the Iraq war, there was Donald Trump, there were all these things happening, technology, the internet, and it actually teaches you so much about those issues and how they all come together in one perfect storm. I had never known that about Donald Trump. I knew about The Apprentice. I didn't know about the wrestling and just how he played that role in such a, dare I say it, charismatic way. Oh, he is charismatic. Like I think it's the, the worst mistake the people on the left make about Donald Trump is like missing the fact that he's incredibly entertaining he's really he's very funny he's very entertaining and he's he has this teflon thing because like any ref like any wrestler like he's like a wrestling character everything's real everything's fake all at the same time so if he says something incredibly misogynistic about hillary clinton he's actually said it and the people who enjoy the misogyny can cheer it on but he can just shrug it off as a joke because he's never fully serious Well, look, we we ignore this at our peril. We ignore the power 
of the things that we don't like at our peril. Mm. And that one, I'd love to go through each of your nine (laughs) case studies, but we can't because it's just, there's too much to say. (laughs) And that would mean that we'd have an hour and a half long podcast and every bit of research tells us that 40 minutes is absolutely perfect. (laughs) However, I do want to talk about Janet Jackson because um, I think she's, I think it's very complicated with Janet Jackson because she has been, she's done things that uh, are, I think, pretty terrible. She has been blamed for things she hasn't done. She has been blamed for the misdemeanors and the crimes, the alleged crimes of her brother, Michael. She's also been, criticized heavily criticized by some black americans for not being black enough and she's been called yeah. a coconut and what is the story of janet jackson i i love writing that chapter actually firstly because it meant listening to loads of janet jackson music which was like a treat that was fantastic but also because she sits at such an she's such an interesting person in terms of where black america is at the time that she starts to achieve success. So she is, her older brothers had to play segregated clubs in, in like the worst, grimmest, imaginable, imaginable Jim Crow laws hanging, still hanging over them. She doesn't go, she's the baby of the family. And as she starts to come through, she's like joining them on stage at Vegas. She's appearing in their variety shows. America has you know, moved on substantially with the civil rights movement. And she's part of the generation that benefits from it. She's also one of the artists who breaks through the really long-standing color bar in American music. So the American charts had always been split into what what used to be called race music and then started to be called R&B and pop music. Janet's a black artist who breaks through into the pop market she and the other person who does this obviously is her brother Michael make these fantastic videos absolute catnip for MTV and they you know they break through the color bars and it's a pretty important cultural moment actually but that doesn't mean obviously that doesn't mean that racism has gone away at all and one of the things that happens after the Super Bowl incident where her breast is shown is that she gets re-racialized in this really like deeply unpleasant way actually um and it's not always explicit it sometimes is very explicit there were white nationalist websites deploring the whole super bowl thing because it was an interracial performance of sex so some of it was explicit but some of it was more just a cold shouldering of her by the white mainstream entertainment industry. She ends up being blacklisted by pretty much all record, pretty much all radio stations, which at this point, radio play is so important that does effectively sink her career for 10 years. Right. And she ends up, she's performing in Tyler Perry films. Tyler Perry is a, a black auteur filmmaker who makes films that are very much like buying for black audiences. And that's where she finds a home in this period of her quote unquote career wilderness. And it's, yeah, I think it says a lot. The Super Bowl incident was a lot more about race or the fallout from it was a lot more about race than I think I'd realized before I started to look at it in detail. 
So, Sarah, what's next for you? Oh, that's a good question. So I haven't written the proposal yet. Um, but a thing I'm interested in is when it comes out of the work that I've done in this book, really, it's thinking about how the internet has changed and in some ways destroyed relationships between ourselves and our bodies. I think existing online is very depersonalizing I think it is very much about having this idea of yourself as a separate entity from your body and you find people doing hilarious tweets about their meat suit and you're a bit like what's wrong with you like, right that's, yeah that, that's who you are but I do think having this experience of existing online being able to present a kind of refined version of yourself in words or posts can be really can cause a real detachment from your physical sense of yourself and it leads to things like I think it drives body dysmorphia I think mm. it drives phenomenons like phenomena like Instagram face this thing yes. of women pursuing a vision of beauty through plastic surgery mm -hmm. that only exists because of the way that you can filter yourself yeah. using Instagram so I find that really interesting I find the detachment from the physical body that sort of comes out of the rise of the internet that I write about this book. I think that would be perfect. We need that book and I'd certainly be the first to buy it. Well, I might not be the first, but I'd be in the <laughs> It depends when I get my order in, doesn't it? Because I'm banned from my local Waterstones by the blue fringes but that's a whole other story sarah it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today thank you thank you for listening have a read of the book if you haven't already it's so good see you next time